0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Welcome to Dreamland. We've got quite a show this week and next week because it's going to run over two weeks. This is a first for Dreamland. We have an incredible colloquy of guests, Jeff Kripal, Diana Pasulka. You know both Jeff and Diana. They've both been on the show. John Philip Santos is with us for the first time. John has been a friend for many years. Uh, he is, a, he is a, teaches at the University of Texas, San Antonio. And r- right now, he has got a, a remarkable course going at UTSA that is called uh, Unimaginable Encounters in Incredible Places, Reading the Paranormal in Literature, Art, film, and popular culture. I wish I could be there all the time. I will be there on the 6th of October. Great. Great. So it is, it's not on, available as an online course, is it, John?
1: We might be able to make it available that particular episode. I think that, that's a great idea, Whitley.
0: Okay, great. Well, if it is available, I'll certainly make sure my listeners know about it. Uh, John's a writer, journalist, and documentary filmmaker, uh, his two memoirs, first, Places Left Unfinished at the Time of Creation, which was a National Book Award finalist for a good reason, I read with great, great pleasure. I have not read the latest one, The Farthest Home is an Empire of Fire. I am incredibly jealous of the title. I want it. Give it to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you use long titles uh, just in case people don't get to the book. So. You know. <laughs>
0: He's produced more than 40 broadcast documentaries. Uh, he was a program officer at the Ford Foundation for six years. And uh, he has been very good to me because he named my book, The Secret School, as one of the 10 books every Texan should read. And at least 15 of them did exactly that. Thank you,
1: <laughs>
0: Jeff Kripal needs no introduction to you, surely. Jeff is the creator of the archives of, Imp- of the impossible at Rice University. I regard him as really my savior in this life because he brought me into the edge of the mainstream where he surfs expertly. And uh, he is, of course, my co-author on uh, Supernatural, which is, a, I think, a, an absolutely groundbreaking book. And uh, he has a new book out that has just come out, The Superhumanities. And Diana, of course, is the author of American Cosmic, a book that blew the socks off the UFO community. And a lot of other people, including Tyler, who is in it. (laughs) Everybody can go on the Internet and find out who he is. But that's all you can find out. You can't find out much about him, and neither can we. Um, So we're not going to go into the issue of Tyler at all. But I urge you to read American Cosmics. I, I have just started on the superhumanities. Jeff is an expert publicist and pushes his own work so well that i found out by accident this morning from a friend that the book was out and uh, I, I, it is can, can you tell us a little bit about it jeff just to start
2: well it's it's the argument is simply that the human has always been superhuman and that to the extent we restrict human nature to the social and the political and the the material we we underestimate what a human being is capable of and what a human being is and uh, I just go through all these cases and try to tell a lot of jokes to push people outside their their comfort zones and and see the human as a superhuman
0: all right well that seems simple enough <laughs> hopefully hopefully, hopefully, at all. hopefully they'll <laughs> hopefully someone will pick up on it and and we'll begin to make some changes in the whole nature of the academic approach to the human experience, which is so essential. Uh, I am going to start our conversation uh, with a, uh, a question that I regard as fundamental. And folks, uh, you might suspect that they've all heard this question before. And we've prepared this in advance, and you'd be right. Anyway, the question is this. What do you think is crucial to our continuing to make progress in understanding a phenomenon that is at once so ambiguous and so provocative? Uh, and John, I think that the the syllabus of your course is really sort of speaks to this whole thing as as both of your books do too uh, Diana and Jeff uh, but to give you an idea folks of this syllabus it's the paranormal in, in the antiquity is the first uh, uh, lecture then shamanism, mythic imagination and radical empiricism uh, literature, art and the paranormal and it goes on down that Track On t- off October the 6th, it will be UFOs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, and History and in Myth. Let's start there. Where are we taking this? What are we going to do here about a phenomenon that is both entirely real, and I haven't an implanted my ear to prove it, and somehow not real in the way we think? of reality. John, I'll I'll open the the floor to you. Uh,
1: Thanks, (laughs) Willie. You know, um, this this seminar has kind of allowed me to, with the students to kind of work through these narratives in terms of trying to sketch out this arc of the ways that humans have related to um, all kinds of anomalous phenomena through time, through the millennia, really. And one of the things that's really come forward in our discussions is the relationship between um, these acts of witness, these episodes of wonder and technology, something that that both Jeff and Diana have talked about extensively in their work. And in this moment we we're, we're in this new era of of um, unidentified aerial phenomena with the UFO phenomena, for instance, in terms of the way just in our lifetimes, we've seen it go from the kind of uh, the, the flying saucer, uh, the Baroque um, figures of Billy Myers photographs to the Tic Tac, this little ovoid object that demonstrates these extraordinary properties, uh, these these uh, physical properties that were able to define through the interface of technology. So, um. The, the radar that's been used, the, the way that that allows us a new kind of radical empiricism about, about this phenomenon. So there's this coeval relationship between the phenomenon itself and um, and the filters that technology present us. Um, and we're coming into a new era around that, both in terms of the kinds of technology around the Tic Tac episodes, but also the web telescope and the way we're seeing uh, The universe in a in a new way or for instance on on youtube the fact that you can you can kind of walk around mars and look at all kinds of anomalous features on the martian landscape through this remote sensing technology so i'm really curious about um you know where this goes now because we're we're early in this we we would think that well this is a very advanced program very advanced uh, uh, artifacts of technology that are being used but in fact, we're, we're very early in the development of these kinds of technologies. So no telling where yet it's going to take us in the relationship to what will be revealed in terms of these kinds of experiences.
0: Well, you know, uh, Jeff, I, I know you're, you're both ready to respond to this, but I want to contextualize it a little bit before we go on. And that is that John talks about this shadow line. That is to say, there are technologies out there of some kind. But as I recall in Supernatural, and of course, I know you extremely well. uh, I know the way you think. And there is, when I call it a shadow line, there is an imaginal side to it or a side to it that's real in another way. And then there is this technology and ultimately physical technology that itself makes no sense. And and does things that don't make sense. Uh, so can you respond to that? And let's just sort of open up the conversation. You don't have to. I don't have to move from. If you if you have something to say, just say it. And and but I would like after Jeff responds to to address Diana in a slightly different way, and then we'll just go on and make it a dis, an op, kind of open discussion.
2: Yeah. So I mean, let me just put a couple things on the table. One is. Um, you know all human technology is first of all human I, I you know i like to joke that the sciences are really just subdivisions of the humanities and what i mean by that is i've never met a scientist who wasn't a human being um I have. Well, I have i have so there you go um that's an that's an interesting comeback actually um, In terms of these technologies, all of these technologies were designed by human beings to enhance human perception, right? Mm -hmm. And if I've learned anything from my neuroscience friends, it's that you can't trust human perception. Um, what, What we sense, what we taste, hear, see, feel is actually not what's there. We're we're only sensing a, a, a tiny, tiny sliver of what what is actually out there. And so what we tend to call reality in, in the modern world is actually sense-based. It's it's what our science and technology can pick up. And and our science and technology, of course, has enhanced uh sense capacities, but it's still human. And you know, to, to sort of drive this home, just imagine your laptop computer, what use it would be to a dolphin? And the answer is nothing. It would be useless. First of all, it fizz out instantly in the ocean, but it would just, it would simply be incapable of, of doing anything. So I think we, we seriously err when we think that that technology and science are giving us the real deal when in fact, they're just enhancing our own, our own very human way of, breaking up reality. And so that that's kind of the deeper kind of challenge is that what what actually do we mean when we say the real? Well we mean the material world is what we mean. And I think that's why these things are so anomalous and so confusing is they're constantly they're constantly violating that assumption.
0: And you know, they they do violate assumptions. That's what they do. Going all the way back in uh, jacques valet's passport to magonia when they arrived in en masse in the skies of merovingian france in the early middle ages a uh, a kingdom very simply ruled by a single individual uh, they announced themselves as being a republic of the air In other words, they were not a kingdom. They were something else. Mm -hmm. Diana, you had, I remember when I, you sent me the galley, I believe it was, or no, I guess it was still in manuscript form, American Cosmic. And I I emailed you back saying, you're going to have a lot of trouble with this. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought to myself, boy, she has really, she's really going to rattle some cages here you rattled the cages uh, but you I want to talk about that a little bit but also you come to this from a, a, a different perspective you're a not not just a scholar of religion but you're an active practicing catholic and that colors your experience of of the of the of, of this edge of reality but tell us first about how you are now with the American cosmic uh, hydrogen bomb that went off in your life. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: yeah, so I would say that I agree with John that we're just at the beginning, academics at least, in studying this. And I think that people who do religious studies have an insight into the historicity of the phenomena. It's been around for a long time. We have a lot of records to, you know, that are documenting the interface between humans and the anomalous. And that's very important. But part of the reason that American Cosmic did rattle some cages, and I won't deny it, is that I did field research. And I think that as academics going into this, now we feel safe enough, some of us, you know, to now that the the US government has acknowledged uh, in June 2021, that there are these anomalous things. And so academics are now studying this. But I think that the academics who have studied this can offer some advice. And part of that is that we need to actually do the field research. We need to get into the places. We need to talk to people who, like you, Whitley, who've had experiences. And, you know, we need to do the kinds of things that we've always done And we also need to acknowledge that why why did American cosmic rattle cages? Because there was misinformation and disinformation, which is there are two different things. Disinfo is intentional. And we have to acknowledge that that is part of the history here in the United States of this specific phenomena that are called now UAPs. And I think that academics have been afraid to identify that, but we can't do it with any kind of integrity if we don't say, Absolutely. Project Blue Book was a disinfo campaign, Um, you know, so and we have to develop now skills in order to decipher any kind of thing that we might want to call truth, because, you know, really, that's what academics are trying to do. They're trying to uncover things that are historically accurate, you know, factual so that we can move on with knowledge. So I would say that that's that's these are some of the things I learned since the publication and even the research, even doing the research. Of american cosmic
1: it's
0: very interesting uh all three of you your responses and i think that where we are now on the shadow line is that we are facing a an absolutely core question about what this is this all of this uh, not just this phenomenon but us, you, all of us, all of you listening and watching. And it comes down to the, to the, the question of, I guess it could be called idealism versus physicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, Jeff made reference to this question of what the world actually is. Is it, is mm-hmm. this a, a thought form that we all in some strange way agree on Mm -hmm. or is this absolutely real? Mm -hmm. When I touch my face, Mm -hmm. am I touching me or is an idea Mm -hmm. creating the the impression that I'm somehow here? Uh, You you know, there's a book I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, called The Idea of the World by Bernardo Castro. Uh, which Jeff introduced me to, and which I have now read about four times. I'm gonna hopefully get Bernardo on the show if he can ever realize that that I'm not simply saucer Sam, but we'll see. That's not easy. Uh, so uh, where are we now? Because we're looking at physical objects. They do things they shouldn't be able to do. They don't make sense. The implants in my ear, there's a piece of debris here in this office. Other pieces have been extensively studied, as we all know, more than we can even say.
1: Mm.
0: And yet, that's not the answer. Mm. So let's just kind of open this to discussion. And John, you have that expression on your face that I've learned means it's going to be really interesting to say
1: yeah my way into all of this uh whitley is has always been through through narrative so going back to something that that jeff touched on in terms of listening to testimonies listening to accounts of witnesses and various experiencers of whatever phenomena Uh, so and we know from narratives that that um the domain of the impossible, as, as Jeff calls it, you know, has has morphed and, and mutated over over time, over many millennia. Um, you know, there's the arc of time, for instance, in the biblical tradition between the book of Genesis, uh, where uh, we see regular interaction between Yahweh and humans. And this is a this is a kind of an ordinary thing going on throughout the early part of the Old Testament. Yahweh signs off at the end of the book of Job with a great chastisement. You know, where were you when I invented the ocean? You know, where were you when I crafted the whale? And, you know, basically Yahweh chastises humanity and disappears. And henceforth, the mysteries of the world, uh, Ezekiel's wheel, are theatrical and confounding. And they require us to interact with them to bring some meaningful story forward. Um, We use our instruments to help us do that. So telegraphy and telephony helped usher in, uh, not just being able to talk across distances or send messages across distances, but also uh, helped birth mediumship in a sense. It kind of emerges coevally with these technologies. So now we have these digital instruments that allow us to uh, be... uh, Anywhere on the planet simultaneously, so we can be talking, we're talking from different parts of the country, but we could be talking to Australia and be occupying the same instant for the first time in humanity's history to be able to be globally present in an instant. So a kind of instantaneity is being modeled with that technology. And then ubiquity, we've got them with us. We've got these instruments increasingly intimately involved with us, probably not too far off. Before they're implanted, wetware uh, horizons, and then the infinite searchability—that we've got this instrument that allows us um, this kind of searchability of, of the universe. So we're modeling a new way of thinking about being human. Uh, I was reading in, in Jeff's chapter from um, *Authors of the Impossible* and Frederick Myers this idea of the newly dawning faculties, you know, and so these instruments are ushering in or they're, they're modeling newly dawning faculties. And maybe at some point we climb up this ladder and then we kick off the ladder and we're in a new place. We have a new kind of capacity. Um, so it has a lot to do with the way that this has evolved in the course of our lifetimes with respect to UFOs and unidentified aerial phenomena. We've seen these changing shapes, these changing... Uh, uh, relationships, the, the emergence, especially with your work, Whitley, the first testimonies of um, an experience written by a writer. So we had the earlier book of Betty and Barney Hill, The Interrupted Journey, but you were the first writer to bring a narrative forward. And that's that was a huge turning point in the popular culture around these these questions.
0: A new... It's really you're talking about a new direction to to go in, and Jeff, superhumanities is about that. It's about a new direction to go in and to to take because the this level the the intellectual level of of, of mankind more than the scientists as scientists, although some of them are certainly part of this, most of them are, uh, is the level that pushes this is where the frontier is, or should be. It's beginning to, to come here. And we're, you know, I wanna, I wanna just diverge for a second. I think that we're up against a situation where we're looking at what in the tiny world of the quanta is called indeterminacy actually being in the physical world i'm sure i'm not sure but you may all be uh familiar with edmund Gettier's Gettier paradox which i mentioned quite often in my talks uh that is the paradox that shows that we can't ultimately find a final truth uh what it it, it, to give listeners who don't know it, it it's this This is a simplified version of it. It, It's called the cow problem. A farmer has a cow he thinks may be ill. So he puts her in a separate field. The field has in it two features, a tree and a little hollow. Uh, The cow will be visible in the field unless she's in the hollow. While he's in his barn working, a piece of black and white paper uh, blows into the field and catches under the tree. The cow is black and white. He glances in, and the cow is absolutely fine. However, the cow has gone into the hollow. He glances into the field, sees the paper under the tree, concludes his cow is fine. He is right and wrong at the same time. His cow is fine. He did not see her. Now, when we see a UFO, I think we're, we're facing this cow, basically, or this situation where we are both right and wrong at the same time when we think of it as a physical object. Mm. Jeff mm. and Diana and John, what do we do with this? Mm. Because an entire planet is facing this it's it, this is a very real problem jeff why don't you start off with your uh, impossible answer which will solve this at last and then each of you please give me give us a, a, a solution that we can live with
2: <laughs> no I, I i can't
0: do that Willie. Really. i don't have oh I don't really have, I yeah, don't i'm so know surprised
2: um, so let let me go back to something John said, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is that we're really dealing with narrative here, story. I, when I, I sat around a, a room for almost a decade in Big Sur, you know, with physicists and biologists and neuroscientists, and we were talking about all these wild experiences, and they kept talking. They were always looking for a mechanism. They always wanted to know what caused this. And I was the, you know, the weird, weird humanist in the room, raising my hand saying, there is no mechanism. There is no cause. These are, these are stories and the point of them is meaning. And it, you know, it dawned on me that I think what a paranormal event is, it's essentially an intervention from some other aspect of oneself or or the world in a, and the message is the story you're inside of isn't working so well. Let's let's start to take it apart so that you can start to tell a different story. And by you, I don't mean you personally. I mean the culture as a whole. And so what I think paranormal events really are about at the end of the day is deconstruction. I, I think they're about taking the culture apart and taking the big story that we're living in apart because guess what? It's not working so well. And that big story might be a religious system. It might be some kind of materialist scientific system. It might be nationalism. It might be any number of things, but my gut feeling is that these events are, when you look at them as a whole, are going to take those things apart. Now that doesn't mean it's going to give you a solution, Willie. It, 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 like a lot of like a lot of phenomena, it's going to rely on the interpreter. This is what you were getting at with the quantum the quantum problem, but it's also the nature of text, textuality and narrative. It's the interpreter that comes up with the meaning. It's not the text or the story itself. The Bible means nothing. it's nothing. It only means something when a community or a tradition engages it and comes up with a set of meanings to it. And so that's a hard thing for people to hear, right? They want to imagine that there's some sort of objective meaning out there, and it's our goal to get to it. I just don't think that's true, and I think we're much more powerful than that and much more significant than that, and the goal here is to create a new world. Yeah. Let, let me say two more things. One is all of the religious worlds people live in were once countercultural or deconstructive of the worlds they arose from. People forget this. They think their religion or their culture or their nation state was always there and was always obvious and natural. It wasn't. It never it's never the case. If you inhabit a worldview, it's because your ancestors essentially won the cultural debates and the, the beat up other people essentially. That's yeah, what we happened. don't want
0: to believe that though. Well, that's what happened historically. Right. Exactly, exactly.
2: Yeah, and the last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up, is I am not an idealist like Bernardo Castro is. I, I deeply admire Bernardo. I adored Bernardo. But I'm finally not an idealist, and I'm not a materialist either. Um, I'm what Harold would call a dual aspect monist. In other words, I think the reality itself is both mental and material, or neither, and that these things appear to us as human organisms. We split up the world into the mental and the material. That's us doing that. It's not so split up. It's not, there aren't these two worlds out there called the mental and the material. There are only those two worlds when a human being enters and engages it and splits reality up. And so again, what I think is happening with this UFO phenomenon is there are these phenomena that look material and mental at the same time because that's the way the world is, and we are never going to understand that because we keep wanting to think things are going to be mental or material when in fact that's just not true. So that's how I would answer your question. And it's not a it's not a settled answer. I don't I don't have a solution for people. I'm just like wow, tell a better story and figure out what kind of story we want. What, what kind of story do your kids want to live in? Because it ain't this one. I'll tell you that.
0: No, that's for sure. It's not this one. Diana, following on to this, you mentioned disinformation, or I believe Jess mentioned disinformation and misinformation. Well, that was and, uh, Diana did. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, it, I think it's very important uh, in the context of your experience with all of this because I can remember we did an entire interview at one point on Dreamland when this was really hitting you very hard you were being uh, vetted and watched and it turned out I had to erase the interview we couldn't even there wasn't a single thing in it that we, we could put out which was very frustrating to say the least And but I I had agreed that I might have to do that beforehand. And so I I fulfilled, I followed that agreement. I don't think anything we talked about should have been hidden. (laughs) And I know you don't either. But we were under pressure from a direction that we couldn't control. Now, this whole area is fraught with misinformation certainly when you hear these all of these stories about different alien species and so forth you have to wonder where is that coming from and then disinformation seems to be feeding the misinformation intentionally and you know a bit about this i'm sure you you've lived it tell us get get i want to you to give us your your vision of 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 this unfocused or intentionally out of focus approach to the whole phenomenon that we're talking about. I'm sorry to go on so long, but it's a complex question and I, I apologize.
3: Yeah, sure. I was actually going to follow up too with Jeff's, what Jeff has said about the deconstructive nature of the UFO event, which I absolutely agree with. Um, I mean, I think I do think, though, that we do have a repository of stories that we can go back to and reread. And I've done that. One of them is the Allegory of the Cave in Plato's Republic. And I've had some conversations with philosophers about this. And I was lucky in graduate school. I had a professor who read these philosophers as religious, which they completely were. They're talking about the soul, you know, they're talking about the ascent of the soul to see truth and things like this. And in my opinion, I th- I know that I this these stories haven't been read fully, or at least we can give them a new read today. And I think that, you know, so we shouldn't throw out the stories that we have. We should just reread them with new information and new data which we have and so the the event of the ufo deconstructs people's worldviews because they're like wow what was that you know and then when you do try to understand what it is you have people who say well these are extraterrestrial from other planets this is the et hypothesis, right? And, you know, they're trying to read them through our physics, you know, our 20th century physics, and and we just can't do that, as Jacques Vallée has pointed out. And so they're deconstructive of our science, they're deconstructive of our religions, they're deconstructive of our bodies, of our individuality. And this is a beautiful thing. And so I don't think though that we need new stories. I think that we just have to allow the story to burst forth and to read it as it is because it's already doing that. And I think it's doing that right now through our technologies like AI. So AI is literally rewriting. And you know, this is so Whitley get getting back to your uh, question about misinfo, disinfo. Certainly this has been the case. We can't deny it. Um, the interview that you and I had, which specifically was about New Mexico and about Maria of Agreda and, you know, colonialism, basically, uh, was what was problematic here, because apparently that that pushed buttons. Um, and this was prior to th- 2021 when the U.S. government you know admitted, OK, we do have these things. And New Mexico seems to be a place where you know it's like ground zero of the mythology right the ufo story is in new mexico here in the united states at least and so you know we we you kept asking questions about that and i answered those questions and this was the issue was that new mexico was a place in the early colonial you know in this in this country's early colonial history where there was exactly what jeff talked about earlier about this you know my you know these ancestors beat up these ancestors, and then this was our story, right? And the story is the story of the people who who win, um, not necessarily the case, by the way, because um, you know it's a, it's a little more complicated than that. But uh, but this was what was at issue, which again, to me, is data. So why you know the misinformation, even what is is suppressed. Uh, why you know that's a question right there and why is that suppressed um, so I think that I think that a lot of people throw out what would be called data uh, I'm an example of this during the writing of the book American cosmic um, you know I'd gone to New Mexico and I was there with um, a space force a person involved in the space force had been his whole life and also dr. Gary Nolan who um, has come out as James in my book so two scientists and We had to be blindfolded. We went into this area where there had been a crash, alleged crash. I didn't believe it, um, but I was there as an academic to do research. And there, the whole place was covered in, in basically rubble. And it shouldn't have been because we were out in the middle of nowhere and it was, it was basically aluminum cans that had been disintegrated over time. And it was about a foot of rubble everywhere. So we had to get through there in order to dig for the debris, right? The crash materials. And I remember that Tyler said to me, he was one of the scientists who took us out there. He said, uh, oh, he said, these were, these cans were placed here by the U S government in the 1950s so that people wouldn't come and find the debris. They would be led off the trail with their, um, You know, and so I included that in the writing of my book. And the editor said, we need to take this out, this reference to the rubble. And I said, why do we need to do that? That it really did happen. And she said, because why would there be rubble in the desert like this? Why would all these cans be? And I was thinking, well, I know she doesn't believe. And I get it because I it's hard for me to believe, too. But I actually did see this rubble. And now of course, it makes perfect sense now that we know that these kinds of measures were taken. And so, I, you know, so that's the kind of thing that we need to keep into this, the the work that we do. If it doesn't make sense to us now, it may make sense to us later. So we need to keep the data that doesn't make sense. And I think that that's something that we can learn from what this experience is, the UFO experience. Hmm.
0: You know, John, uh, she makes reference to mm-hmm. the um, uh, to events that took place in New Mexico in the early days the the um, uh, it was a, not she, she by location of a, of of a, of a nun in you. You're familiar with the story, I'm sure. Maria of Avila I believe it is a Greta yeah. yeah she's very. spanish yeah right cloister well, uh, why don't you speak mm-hmm. to this because this is i think something that is both very important and that you mm-hmm. know about because this is a th- th- this particular episode of dreamland was squelched mm-hmm. in in significant part because it talked about that Really? You talked about that by location. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. this gets me to a, 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 a. someone was pointing at that and saying, we don't want the public to know about that.
1: Really? Wow.
0: And this, your whole life and your being comes out of that culture in a way, in more than one way.
1: Well, you know, both of us were San Antonio lads, Whitley and I are both uh, San Antonio born, San Antonio raised. And uh, and South Texas, the greater borderlands reaching into New Mexico, I see is kind of contiguous in terms of these phenomena. There's a beautiful book by the science writer George Johnson called Fire in the Mind. And it, it deals with the ancient setting of the indigenous peoples of New Mexico and the incredible scene of Chaco Canyon, the only place in the territorial U.S. where you can see the ruins of a city and a very unusual city, crescent forms rather than towers, uh, submerged spaces, um, multi-story dwellings uh, nestled in this canyon. So origin of Hopi and Navajo and other indigenous peoples trace their origins to this place. The overlay of the stories that we're talking about in terms of the first conflicts between the arriving Spaniards and the indigenous peoples and the place of the Pueblo revolt, the first insurrection against that, that hierarchy an attempt to deconstruct this new order. Um, and then all of the phenomena we've been talking about in terms of Roswell and Jacques Valet and Paula Harris's book recent, uh, recently on Trinity, um, this, this, uh, other crash incident, you know, why there and, uh, George Johnson in this book also adds in the Santa Fe Institute, you know, why uh, do we see the, the, the development of the bomb in Los Alamos and the Santa Fe Institute? These um, uh, feeling our way into the quantum world, you know, feeling our way into uh, uh, quantum mechanics in the case of the bomb and flux and chaos in, in the case of the, the work of the Santa Fe Institute. So. Um, you know, the question I asked um, you, Whitley, in a note last night was, um, you know, is it something about the place? So something geomantic, something, uh, some aspect of geomancy about this place, some power invested in the land? Or is it something that happens circumstantially when just over time there is a, a kind of a, a human, ongoing human legacy of scrutiny and engagement and wonder and and uh, and story. Um, there's an incredible detail um, in uh, Werner Herzog's film, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, about the painted cave in Chauvet. One of the remarkable things he says in this that is based on the research that's been done, the paintings in Chauvet Cave constitute a text, a storytelling palette that was active over 5,000 years, continuously adding to. So we have nothing of that kind in, in terms of our tradition, you know, an actual text. So we're at the beginning of potentially a new kind of active text um, that we're, as we scrutinize, engage and and try to recover the history, we're setting out, I mean, about 4,000 uh maybe eight hundred or nine hundred and eighty five years ago before we can match the uh, Chauvet Cave. But uh, that's the promise of this reengagement that that Jeff and Diane are so much a part of, really the 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 progenitors of reengaging this interrupted story. You know, William James and Frederick Myers in the academic world were doing it a hundred and some years ago, we're back in the game now. So uh took the 20th century off largely, Uh we're <laughs> back at it. Yeah. That's so it. We, we, we went
0: down. We went down a path that ended before we realized it. It ended. We kept going down it, even though it, now we had no path. We're beginning to realize that that path was uh, uh, was not was actually not there for at least the last half of the 20th century. Wonder and story. Uh, Jeff, these two words that John said a few minutes ago uh, relate, I think, very much to your approach to all of this. You speak so often of story, that this is a story. And I know from your life and our friendship that for you, it is uh, infused with wonder. And, but what is wonder when you come to a story like this, which has got uh, very dark aspects? I've lived them, and many of my listeners have too. But also something else. Is it all part of the wonder, Jeff? Well, what is this story? Energy. You ask me such easy questions, really. <laughs> well, um, that's why we're here. I'm a simple guy, and I ask many questions.
2: Let me, let me bounce off of Diana and John. Um, Diana's point about we, we do have stories, which I totally agree with, and John's point that you know we don't have this 5,000-year story. And so my response to that is um, we actually do have a 5,000-year story we just are not taking advantage of it this goes back to diana's point really you know i was trained in a field called history of religions and it's the whole freaking canvas from the cave paintings to modern internet you know and phone calls from the dead on your telephone you know it's the whole thing
3: mm-hmm. and
2: i think what is being deconstructed is people's commitments to only one of one part of the little canvas you know I'm over here this is all there is the rest of it doesn't exist I'm like no actually the whole the whole mural is true it's all there and we have to see the whole thing and then then we will get a kind of a bigger what I call a super story um so I I just wholeheartedly agree with what Diana and John just said and I don't say that performatively or for any degree of duty or anything I just think it's correct and I don't want to be heard that we just make up another story and that our uh, none of our past stories are are important. There, I, And this goes to your question of wonder, and I'll, then I'll shut up. I do think this religious notion of revelation is really, really significant because essentially what revelation is is something given. The person does not make it up. The yeah. community does yeah. not construct it. It right. actually appears. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a vision or it's a deified human being or it's. Mm-hmm. it just appears from elsewhere. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's missing in this whole UFO story is these are actually revelations. Mm-hmm. People aren't making this stuff up for, for whatever reason. Something is intervening. In human history, and space and time, and trying to reveal something that's really, really important. So this is where you know I'm I'm actually quite traditional. I and I I'm very fond of of the religions. Um, I just think that the it's constantly developing. It's constantly moving. Um, and so that that's where the sense of wonder comes in. Whitley is is hmm. these are not experiences that are constructed by the person they're coming from outside the person and so there's this sense of whoa or wow or you know this uncant this uncanniness
0: the uncanny aspect of it is very interesting because that there is a I always I started out talking about this shadow line and that shadow line is the uncanny really and the the military and the intelligence community and government as a whole has found itself stuck on that shadow line they're shooting at this phenomenon yeah uh, we know it they've been shooting at it at mm-hmm. least since 1952 and probably before that uh, the the uh one of the one of one of the things that was so shocking to me when I was just getting into this was the discovery that one of the major players in this whole shooting business, the base commander who had been in command of the airbase where uh, Captain Mantell had shot apparently at a UFO in 1947, was was cashiered and then ended up living around the corner from us. And my father used to send me over to play with his children. And then when I came back, my dad was, I don't know what he was, but one of the things he was, was a very good interrogator. You never knew when you were being interrogated by him. And then suddenly he knew everything that you had thought you were keeping secret. And he would ask me what we had talked about. And I've often wondered, dad passed away before I knew any of this stuff. I've often wondered why that man was there and who he my father was. And Diana, you're very familiar with this type of secrecy and people with hidden agendas, which are ultimately violent agendas. And we, we had Gary Nolan on the show a few weeks ago, and he talks about the damage to the brains of some of these soldiers mm-hmm. in these confrontations. So tell us a little bit about that. What you what you would like to say your reaction to it because I know you're you're very close to the edge and a little beyond the edge of the kind of the inside of all of this.
3: Um, <clears throat> well <laughs> I would say that first we can't just say there's one phenomena called the UFO. So there are there's a variety of phenomena that people call a UFO. So there's the John Mack type of encounter that um, looks to be, I mean, I've looked at it in the Catholic tradition and, you know, like Teresa Vavila's experience with a little being that she is confused at first what it is, and then says, this has to be some type of angel. And then that's actually redacted out of her autobiography later by, uh, Catholic, basically Catholic theologians. Um, so, you know, I mean, and then we look at a lot of the historicity of these encounters and we do see that, you know, damage, right. So physical damage to people. So I think that, uh, I've talked to Gary, of course, a lot about this and I don't, honestly, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. I think it's disturbing. I think everybody's it should be disturbing. And I also think that part of the information and misinformation in Project Blue Book was an attempt to, you know, to figure it out without alarming people about it. And that's a noble intention right there. It's not a bad thing, right? So, um, so a lot of the disinfo and misinfo we could chalk up to national security, I think. Um, Maybe not all of it, but certainly with respect to that. And um, honestly, I think that it's been the case. I mean, it's been the case, if you look at the history of religions, that not all of the gods and goddesses, devas and devis have been beneficial for humans. I mean, they've done a lot of, you know, Mm -hmm. if you look at the, you know, the Greek and Roman ideas, uh, which by the way, a lot of them, you know, we call them myth, but they, they actually believe them. Um, at least at some point, not today. Um, you know, I mean, these were like beans that were not necessarily beneficial to humans so it's always been there. We just have decided to color code it in some of the religions and make it pretty. Um, but it's, it's not. It's always been, you know, this, this type of thing. And I also want to get back to Jeff's point, if that's okay, about this idea of revelation. Because I think that, you know, in at least when you do look at the the 20th century you do see this progression of this idea that revelations of the past right so we don't do revelation anymore but again if you look at some of the philosophy and some of the philosophers who philosophy even says we don't understand what you're talking about but we're talking about philosophers like friedrich nietzsche or martin heidegger martin heidegger was talking about revelation right he was talk he was using a secular philosophical german historical tradition to basically say, we don't know what's going on here, but it looks like there's something that's outside of ourselves communicating with us. I mean, he had to even invent a language to, to discuss what this was. Uh, Nietzsche also was in the grips of it. Okay. So the, this is revelation. And I think Jeff is absolutely correct that, you know, Carl Jung also said, you have the ability now to look at this new worldview, this new mythology, uh, this new religion of right. the UFO. And so, yeah, we're seeing something that, you know, when people are giving us their testimony, when you really give us your testimony, this is basically testifying to uh, something that we can't control, something we're not making up and something that now we, de- we are dealing with. <laughs> and I think we're at a really interesting point in time in our history when the U.S. government is coming out and saying, oh, yeah, these, this is real.
0: That's certainly true because they, they, they have not stopped to realize that they need to define that word real. Hmm. Terence McKenna said something that it is, but that's why we're here, right? Uh, <laughs> something that is very germane, not only to what you just said, but to this whole conversation. Hmm. We are part of a symbiotic relationship with something which disguises itself as an extraterrestrial invasion. Mm -hmm. so as not to alarm us. Mm -hmm. We all know that famous quote. Mm -hmm. But I want to touch now on this word symbiotic. And I want to go, John, to you, Mm -hmm. because you are in your blood part of a tradition of symbiosis uh, that stretches back thousands of years in the Native American community. And I wonder what, in a per, on a personal level, this means to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are you in the context of symbiosis with this
1: phenomenon? You know, I think, I think, Whitley, that all of us are part of that story. So each of us carries a version of that story. Yes. It's been part of my work to try to uh, trace it in the context of a mestizo identity, a a mixed uh, indigenous and European Iberian um, lineage. But, you know, the farther you go back in time, uh, the more restless your ancestors were. And we are from everywhere. Genetics will tell us that we are from everywhere, that we have this lineage of diaspora. So You know, our ethnicities have been kind of like improvisational riffs on on human meaning. And, you know, rather than a kind of a destination or something that we can return to or restore, they were always transitional. And, um, you know, in my family, it was really a a part of uh, my dad's mother's tradition and her sister's. They were Rosicrucians. They were followers of Nino Fidencio, a healer from northern Mexico. Uh, So we grew up with this idea that there were human powers that weren't um, taught about in church or in school and that they used them for good. One of my my tias here in San Antonio, Tia Pepa, was a widely regarded healer. Um, unfortunately, one of the things she was specialized in was herbal suppositories, so that was uh, not entirely. <laughs> oh, I'm on said, my way. God help me. She kept in the freezer, uh, so it was oh, never no. it was never good news when you were going to see Pepa.
3: <laughs> later in life, later
1: in life, she uh, told me so much about this tradition, and you know what I realized was that. I was brought up thinking, well, an appeal to that story, an appeal to that origin story, had always been deemed inauthentic or um, uh, illegitimate. I could claim all kinds of intellectual lineage to ancient Greece or ancient Rome or Judeo-Christian tradition, but to reach back into ancient Mexico, to the source of this indigenous vision of the cosmos, that was inauthentic, it was romantic, it was illusory. And uh, so each of us has this challenge to um, recover that connection to the deep story underlying our presence. And all of us have a, a, a unique uh, version of this. You know, when I, when I mentioned that, the wonder about the, the Chauvet Cave story, you know, uh, the idea of a text over 5,000 years taking shape so the idea that these people thought they were maybe in communication with their ancestors. But remarkably, in the cave in Chauvet, there are no human forms. They don't, there's only one human form in the, at the very bottom of the cave. And it's in the back of this uh, stalactite hanging from the, the, the ceiling of the cave. And it's a hybrid female uh, bull form so it's in the remotest place in this cave the cave is in that other respect impersonal the natural world animals and beasts and, and incredible uh, renditions and then there's one presence of an individual there's a there's a, a a particular hand that appears throughout the cave that has a bent pinky finger so for all of the impersonality of the story that emerges in there we have only this one particular reference to one individual life who along the way was participating in this story. And when you bring up Terence, and I'll, I'll end here, just, I was just thinking about Terence McKenna and, and thinking about Terence in terms also of his idea that we're not just relating to the past, but that there is a kind of a hearkening or a beckoning that's coming from futurity, uh, something that... that McKenna was really working on towards the end of his life this idea of a kind of a endpoint, which he sort of describes as this kind of gleaming obsidian diamond, you know, uh, at the end of time. Um, that was a kind of an attractor of, of all of this story, or maybe to use a term that Jeff uh, often coined, a super story. Um, Can we connect to that? Can we become intentional about it through our scholarship, through our creativity, Whitley, through the the writing um, that you do? That's the challenge. And that's something that, you know, could spread as a meme in popular culture too.
0: Yeah, memes, (laughs) spreading memes in popular culture is something that we are all ending up doing. And uh, I I started quite accidentally some years ago, I had no idea. Anne and I thought that communion would sell, you know, a few 10,000, 20,000 copies or something. We had no idea what was actually out there. And for those who are listening, this is the, and watching, this is the end of the first week. Uh, We will be back again next week, but for the four of us who are here, we're going to just keep on talking uh, so that uh, but when we're, we're back next week, we're going to begin to get into the future of this relationship. And I try to bring that, bring it into focus. And the shadow line I've been talking about has got to become something more clear. Or we can't make progress with this. Uh, how will we do this in the context Of a government that is very frightened and very resistant and doesn't really have any clear idea of where it's going and in that context we'll also be talking about religion and the fear of demons and uh, what do we do with what could be old superstitions about something very real so thank you for being with us this week and we will be continuing on next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Strieber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.